This podcast is about unsolved mysteries. Yes, the old TV show hosted by what we previously believed to be a reanimated corpse that we now think is actually just a ghost. Whenever possible, the hosts have used swear words to convey how they feel about some of the fucked up shit that was featured on this show. We will not apologize for that. What you're about to see is not a news broadcast, because this isn't TV. Tonight, on the Our Strange Skies podcast... A real-life Shaggy and Scooby-Doo have been trying to make contact with aliens for the last few years, taking to random cornfields and mountains just to get abducted by them. But what happens when they get too close to the truth? A New York journalist journeyed to the small town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, hot on the lead of a mysterious creature known as Mothman. During the investigation, it started to become more apparent that he was being led by a mysterious force. Was he the victim of the fickled finger of fate? And two groups of men embarked on camping trips to remote outback locations. While camping, they encountered strange lights in the sky and made the fateful decision to signal them with a flashlight, which led to alien abduction. Was this a dumb move? Join me. Perhaps you may be able to help solve a mystery. Welcome, everyone, to a very special edition of the Our Strange Skies podcast. I am your host, Rob Christofferson. Today, we're going to be talking about the Allagash abductions, a case made famous when it appeared on Unsolved Mysteries in the early 90s. And to help me cover this story, I have a special guest. You know him as the screenwriter of the Mothman Prophecies, and he's written for various other TV shows, including Supernatural, Grimm, The Dead Zone, and most recently, DC's Titans. Of course, I'm talking about Rich Adam. Rich, welcome back to the podcast, man. Thanks, Rob. Once again, I've been brought on to discuss something about which I know virtually nothing, and I'm not an expert at all. But don't 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 you worry. That won't stop me from having plenty of opinions. You got a leg up on it because you already have the book, so at least you're slightly prepared. Well, that was because you know you and I were talking offline, and you, you know, just again for the viewers at home, Rob always alerts me when he's reading something that is particularly terrifying, and, and then suddenly <laughs> I started getting all these text messages in the middle of the night going, hey, man, I'm really freaking out. Have you read this book? (laughs) (laughs) To to which my response is always, oh, no, I haven't. I'll have to get it immediately, which I then do. And then I start reading and I'm like, shit, man, this really is bad. (laughs) And and this book in particular is terrifying. Um, And, of course, the book we're talking about is the Allagash Abductions by Raymond E. Fowler, a seminal classic in the abduction literature. So the the reason that we're doing this is because I'm paying tribute to Unsolved Mysteries, and this story in particular really 
affected me when I was about nine years old, the first time I ever saw it. Right, so, because you're you're from the unsolved mysteries generation, and I'm older than you. I'm from the in search of generation. Yes. So it's like I understand every, like everything you're saying, all the emotions, everything are exactly the same except switch out the words unsolved mysteries and put in in search of and then switch out Robert Stack and put in Leonard Nimoy and mm-hmm. I'm 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 I, I totally understand everything you're talking about. So you didn't watch Unsolved Mysteries at all? No, that was during I mean like that was in the nineties, right? Uh it was More or less late eighties. Late eighties through like most of the nineties and uh they canceled it initially in two thousand two. Yeah, see that was during that, that was when I was sort of you know, college, post-college, and then, you know, getting married, having children, getting divorced, you know, just, you know, it was, it was a big decade. So, uh, unfortunately, what I wasn't doing, because Unsolved Mysteries, to me, I always thought that was true crime. It has that reputation where most of the stories that they covered were true crime. Of course, Initially, when talking to John E.L. Tenney, the first interview I ever had with him, he made a good point and like, well, you can only cover so much murder. You've got to throw in a paranormal tale or something like that to kind of fill it or maybe like a Lost Loves segment. And you really missed out on the Lost Loves, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they never really did that on In Search Of. Um, You know, it's funny. So John's, in other words, John's theory is, you know, you can only take so much murder and then you need alien abduction to lighten the mood. Oh, yeah. You totally need alien abduction to lighten the mood. and. Maybe a ghost story, and I mean, they featured a ghost story, or a haunted location that you've actually been to. Oh, which one? The, the the La Posada Hotel. Oh yeah, 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 and the um and the Stab House, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, I have been there in the in the deepest darkest winter, uh, with my son who was like I I think Dasha was ten years old at the time, mm-hmm. so just the other day. I mean, literally, like after I had gotten off the phone with you or something, uh, I was I was like, "Hey, do you remember when we went and and we were in New Mexico? We were in Santa Fe, and we went in, into the that haunted hotel, and we were on that ghost tour." And he's like, "What? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah." And he's like, "Yeah." And that guy, the guy in the cowboy hat, was taking us on the tour. I'm like, "Right," except for one thing we never told you, Dashel. What, Dad? That man, he had died. 20 years before then. (laughs) (laughs) This is the sort of parenting (laughs) that I'm doing out here. So yeah, there you go. Just, just raising the next generation of your listeners. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Parenting advice from rich Haddam one (laughs) one. That's what you come to the, our strange guys podcast for. Feel free, guys. Forget forget the violin lessons. Uh, just, yeah. just start, start up with a mind fuck, and you, you'll do fine. <laughs> you'll be perfectly fine. So, first things first, Rich, you, you asked for a platform to give us your theory that you ended the last episode you were on with. So, the floor is yours to represent your theory and why everybody in the UFO game is just foolish now. Well, I mean, I think it's only fair to the listeners that they understand what they're hearing in the context of the solution of the alien abduction phenomenon. Right. So, so which I came up with 
like, I don't know, a year, a year and a half ago. And, you know, by the way, the lamestream media has done nothing about it. Uh, they so, didn't pick up know, on it, man. They just didn't pick up on it. No, they're, they're, they're still running around with that to the Stars Academy bullshit. Oh, yeah. I mean, come yeah. on. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> All right. So let me let me uh, pull up a chair and let me drop some knowledge on you and school you up, as the kids say, on the alien abduction phenomenon. And the nice thing about my solution to the alien abduction phenomenon is that it also kind of bleeds over into um, mediumship and uh, haunted locations and near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences. It kind of, it, it's kind of a, it's like a, it's, it's like gold bond. It sort of cures everything, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so here, here's how it works. Okay. Um, if people are able to perceive these sort of, uh, other realities, okay. Ghosts, UFOs, aliens, all that kind of stuff. Um, I, 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 I think it might have, I think it has to do with consciousness. And I think, uh, the, the physical part of consciousness is whatever leaves the body during an out of body experience or a near death experience. Um, so let's just call that your, your own personal consciousness. I'll try to stay away from spirit and soul and astral body. But just picture that inside of you is sort of a ghost version of you that looks just like you. Okay? Just to kind of, you know, bring it down to Halloween terms. (laughs) (laughs) And and this, this ghost, this sort of, you know, this glowy ghost version of you can walk around. It just sort of like steps out of the shell. If it was like a hermit crab, it steps out of your body shell and can go walk around. And that's what happens during a near-death experience or possibly a, uh, 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 an out-of-body experience. But also possibly this is connected to the alien abduction experience, that it's happening to a kind of quasi-physical part of you but maybe not your entire physical body. We, we don't know that part yet, but here's how the theory goes. Um, some people are born with a, uh, that interior body. It, it can slip out a little easier just based on physical things. Some people are just born that way. Um, and some people are born in such a way that physically it's much harder for that inner uh, uh, body to detach and go, go kind of you know, ghost walking. Um, now, some people, when they're young, uh, get into a, an accident, like a car accident, or they fall out of a tree and hit their head. And what happens is it sort of loosens that inner body that you have inside you. And it sort of, it sort of knocks it out a little bit and allows it to go out of its shell a little bit, or, or at least to kind of escape the body just enough to like make you psychic or, or make you a medium or, or able to see dead people. Okay. So there is a physical element to it, but not every like everyone's got the organ, just not everyone, you know, has it shaken loose enough to to sort of breathe a little and experience life plus. We'll put a little plus sign. Mm-hmm. Now those people are the ones who when you go to a haunted location, you don't see anything, but they're like, Whoa, I'm getting a bad feeling here. Okay? 
mm-hmm. or maybe they're the ones who actually see the ghost and you don't see anything. Okay. Because their, their, their little ghost body is, is more alive. It's kind of bleeding out of their physical body a little bit. And that, that creates, that's like an antenna almost for some of this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Now, some people, this happens to them during a near death experience. Rob, have you heard the people who have a near death experience? Sometimes in the aftermath of that, they discover, whoa, I'm kind of psychic now. Yep. Yeah, or the, the, like suddenly there, there's other paranormal phenomenon that they are now aware of or able to perceive. And sometimes this is because that physical shock in the near-death experience, either from, you know, a car accident or, or some sort of, you know, physical blow or, or even a, a heart attack, something, something loosened it up that first time. And now that it's been loosened up, it can go gallivanting around. So what does this have to do with alien abduction? Well, I think maybe some of these people, maybe some of them, are, are a little bit more able to uh, experience an alien abduction or see a UFO or have a UFO experience because their, their, their inner ghost body has been loosened up and, and, and is bleeding out of their body a little bit and it can see these things. Now, now what I'm bumping up against here is that this may be a 100% psychic experience. So um, people who have the alien abduction experience may physically still be wherever they were. And it is now their inner body, their ghost, their soul, their astral body that is off having this sort of slightly less physical experience interacting with aliens. And then that body is then guided back into the physical body, and that's the return. So that, that I feel, is the, is the closest explanation that, uh, that I and now we as a people have for how this is all happening. So now that we've got that cleared up. <laughs> now that Rich has solved the enigma that is the anomalous, uh, we can proceed <laughs> forward. <laughs> Good. Now, 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 now we're all holding the same cards in our hand. Okay. Now we can uh, walk forward. I think the real question is: now that you have it figured out, when are you going to have this transformational experience in your life, Rich? When is that oh. going to happen? Oh no, not me, brother. <laughs> not me. You're Rob, saying you, you know- and I. You and I are like if they if they did the Scooby Doo cartoon, but it was just two guys and they were both shaggy. That's us. <laughs> Yeah, but I've had a fair amount of personal experiences in my life. You're due, Rich. You're due, buddy. Well, like, gee, I don't know. I don't know, Rob. <laughs> oh, man. I'll be, I'll be, then in that case, you be shaggy. No, I guess that would, would that make you Scooby or Shaggy? Who's a, Who do you think is more open to the, those those other world experiences, Scooby or Shaggy? I think Scooby because he's a dog, and dogs are automatically o- more open to these kind of experiences. You're right. You know what? You're Scooby. I'm Shaggy. Yep. yep. <laughs> Good. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> now we know what our Halloween costumes are this year, Rob. Yeah. Uh, yep. I'm gonna have to fly out to California. We're gonna have to go to a couple parties. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! You have no idea how much I wish that would happen. Hey, I'm on vacation this Halloween, and I don't have anything planned, so you never know. <laughs> Get out here! I swear to God, no, seriously, there are things we could do. I mean, yeah, we could hang out at my house. We have a few people over. The kids go trick or treating. I make a few drinks. This could work out. Uh, it could. It very well could. Interestingly enough, 
I was doing a little research on the Unsolved Mysteries side of things, and one of the things that comes up is that most of the staff and producers, and even Stack himself, was skeptical of most of the paranormal stuff that they would feature on the show. However, there was one quote from one of the producers that basically said, the Allagash abductions is one of the ones that made Stack scratch his head. He was kind of a little convinced by it. So, we're bringing to you one of the few mysteries that Stack may have believed in. So, Too bad we can't have him on. I, I know. Can we get the ghost of Robert Stack in here on the podcast, please? Somebody, if anybody knows... The ghost of Robert Stack, if he's out there, we, we'd love to interview him, for sure. We're invoking you now, Robert. Now's your chance. <laughs> just put just, just do a little voice or something. Just lay down a little sound. We'll know it's you. <laughs> yeah. Our story begins at the PSI Symposium in Waltham, Massachusetts, on May 6, 1988. Do you know May 6? Do you know... The importance of that date. Do you know how uh, it, to this podcast why the state is significant at all? Because uh, it's your birthday. Yeah, it is my birthday. You, you're <laughs> absolutely right. I was five years old. I was five years old at the time. Well, you know, and you asked me, but you know my connection to to the Mothman and my birthday, right? Yeah, because you were born like what a few days before the Mothman stuff. You know, it was, started going I was, off. I was born on the day, uh, November 2nd, 1966. That's the day Woodrow Derenberger met Indrid Cold. Yeah, so you're automatically... It, it, it was faded, Rich. It was faded from birth. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of weird, right? I didn't know that until I was, you know, in my 30s. It's just so weird, man. It's so weird. And and now we're here doing this podcast. And now we're we're living my fears out right now. So <laughs> um don't, don't, don't worry, Scoob, you're fine. <laughs> so Ray Fowler had been giving a presentation about the Betty Andreessen abduction case, which is a case he had been uh, investigating for well over a decade by this time. And he was in the process of selling some of his books when he was approached by a man named Jim Weiner. Fowler's career in UFO investigation began in 1963, and shortly after joining the group NICAP, became a state director for the organization. He saw his first UFO on July 4th, 1947, and he would have many more sightings as the years went on. He joined the Air Force in 1952, where he was trained in electronic espionage. So, automatically, this guy's a badass. (laughs) (laughs) He worked for the NSA, and he worked on the Minuteman Project as well. Again, further attesting to his badassery. (laughs) (laughs) He's got all the badass, uh, uh, you know, qualifications. Let's, you know, let's admit that. He does. He later became MUFON's director of investigations and wrote two editions of their field investigators manual. Well, I do have one of those somewhere kicking around around here. And uh, through his investigation of the Betty Andreessen case in the late 70s and through the 80s, he came to the realization that he himself 
was an experiencer and had abduction experiences dating back to his childhood. Did he ever write an autobiography detailing his experiences? He actually did. His autobiography is called UFO Testament, Anatomy of an Abductee. And oh. let me tell you, this book is over 600 pages. It's a, it's a walloper. Well, that's what's so weird about this guy is that there's that stage in his career. He's working with Hynek and you're like, oh, so this guy is sort of a scientist, military guy. And, you know, you you immediately go, oh, he's probably more skeptical. And and then he he goes on a journey. And I got to tell you, I only knew about him or I originally knew about him because of titles like, you know, you know, watchers, you know, you know, undeniable proof of alien experimentation on humans. And I'm like, oh, this sounds a little bit much. And I didn't know how he started his career. So I'm like, wait a second, this is the same Ray Fowler? Yeah. And he tied his research up into near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences. Uh, that's ultimately oh, the path that they went on. So Look at that. Okay, look at where okay. we are. It's This is like an, uh, an episode of Astonishing Legends where everything is connected, I guess. <laughs> everything is connected by proving that I'm a genius. Yes. Yeah, 100%. This is the Rich Haddam show. He's the mastermind behind the curtain, people. <laughs> Jim Weiner was searching him out because he had suffered a brain injury from a home accident, and it led him to suffer from temporal lobe epilepsy. To kind of put this in perspective, this is one of the things that Whitley Strieber was tested for when he was having his experiences in 1985. And so, what was the result of that test? He tested negative. Right. I think the temporal lobe epilepsy is this um, is sort of a uh, smokescreen. It, it's like, oh, well, that must be, you know, what's causing the visions. What I think is that it's the epilepsy or the injury that causes the epilepsy that also simultaneously loosens the ghost body and allows you to perceive and or remember some of these otherworldly experiences. Baboom. Yeah, bam, right there. The theory is coming into play. This ultimately led Jim Wiener to have these really strange dreams involving strange beings staring at him, levitation, and temporary paralysis. And he believed that it stemmed from an experience in 1976. He told Fowler that he, his brother, and two of their friends were camping in the Allagash Wilderness of Maine, when they had a very odd UFO encounter, and as each of them would recount their story to Fowler, they were all kind of strikingly similar. The Allagash Four, as they came to be known, became friends at the Massachusetts College of Art in the mid-1970s. Jim and Jack Weiner, they are identical twins, grew up around Allentown, Pennsylvania, and spent the majority of their time together. They were like two peas in a pod. But after high school, the two went their separate ways. Jim earned a BA in psychology while Jack graduated from the Massachusetts College of Art with a BFA in graphic arts, and he would later earn a master's in ceramics from the Ben Franklin School of Artisanry. 
So good on Ben Franklin for being a good source of inspiration for artisanry. Yeah. Well, so, okay, so these four guys all met at art school, so they all had some kind of interest in the arts or artistic ability or something, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. Charlie Foltz joined the Navy after high school and worked in a nuclear program where he specialized in the disposal of nuclear waste from submarines. He was discharged in 1972 and split his time as an electrician and took night courses in art from uh, Youngstown State University. He later transferred to the Massachusetts College of Arts, earning a BFA in photography and illustration. And the fourth member of our group is a man named Chuck Rack, and he is the oldest. He had a very rough childhood in his teens, and he traveled the world with his father, visiting England, Holland, Germany, Austria, Italy, and Switzerland. He attended the University of Arizona for a short period of time before dropping out due to financial problems. He later attended Massachusetts College of Art, uh, where he met the Wiener Brothers and Charlie Foltz. So we've got all our central players here together meeting at one university for the arts. And uh, after college, Jim and Charlie stayed in Massachusetts Jim became an instructor of computer arts at the MCA, while Charlie became a medical illustrator for the Veterans Administration, and Jack and Chuck moved to Vermont. Jack operated a computer art company out of his home, while Chuck was a self-employed portrait artist, which I still believe he is today. So a lot of these guys were even making their living doing art. Yes. Yes, right. 100%. In... August of 1976, Chuck made a trip up to Boston and brought up the idea of camping in the Allagash Wilderness. He had camped and canoed there the year before, and he had been camping in other places like Alaska and uh, a few other areas uh, across the country. So, known as the Allagash Wilderness Waterway, it comprises 92.5 miles of lakes, ponds, rivers, and streams. At the time, it contained very few roads, and the only ones that existed at the time were from former logging industries. So this is really, I mean, it's super remote. Yes, you, in some of the areas that they got to, they had to be flown in. Um, there was a specialty service that I don't think is in commission anymore that we'll cover in a second, but uh, yeah... So if people wanted to go to the exact place where this happened, they would have a hard time doing it. It might even not be possible. You'd have to fly in and you'd have to be pretty proficient with a canoe, in other words, because this is the remotest of the remote. Right. Shortly after midnight on August 20th, the four men piled into Chuck's overloaded Chevy Vega and took off for Maine. <laughs> they are, they arrived at the base of Mount Katahdin, the northernmost point of the Appalachian mountain chain, by 8 a.m. So they weren't wasting daylight here. So the okay, so these guys said they, they, they met. Uh, I just want to make sure we're keeping track of this. So they met at, at college, and now they're what? Like when this incident happened, were they like in their 30s, late 20s? Uh, late 20s. Yep. I, I think okay, Chuck. So I think Chuck was actually in his early thirties at this point. Okay, 
Got it. All right. All right. So, and at this point, the the brain injury is in the future. Yes. No, no one knows anything about anything. They're just no one's had weird experiences. They're just four guys going on a camping trip. The twins, Jim and Jack Weiner, have at this point they've had strange experiences in their childhood, but they don't connect it to anything. Like they, there is a poltergeist or ghost that they grew up with in their home but beyond that it doesn't relate to aliens at all or anything like that okay okay in the days leading up to the group's first ufo sighting in the allagash they climbed mount katadin and were flown deeper into some of the most remote parts of the wilderness and they canoed and moved from campsite to campsite On the evening of Tuesday, August 23rd, they paddled to their next site on Mud Brook, where they joined several campers. That evening, Jim was the first to see the strange light. It reminded him of the flame inside a pottery kiln. So there's a bunch of campers at this site. There's a bunch of tents, and he just looks up and he sees this really odd-looking light in the sky. And... One of the campers that uh, he's with says, you know, what the heck is that? So through a pair of binoculars, Jim could see that there was a structure to this thing, whatever it was. Uh, It only appeared to be a few miles away and just a few hundred feet above treetop level. Um, The object hovered for a couple of minutes before it extinguished outside in, which is really interesting. Two days later, so beyond that, nothing else weird had happened. Later you find out that a couple of the other guys actually witnessed this uh, strange light in the sky. So two days later, the men set their sights on Eagle Lake and spent most of the day paddling to the Smithbrook campsite located on the eastern side of the lake. They were alone out there, and once setting up, uh, they had to set out and fish for food because earlier in the day they had tried fishing to supplement their food stores, what was left, and they just couldn't catch anything. Everything was inedible, so they set out for a night fishing trip. To do this, they build a fire big enough to see for miles to mark their campsite so they have a point of reference to get back to. Right. It it was so big that Jim later remarked that he was worried that it would start a forest fire. It was that big. So a little foreshadowing here with the campfire. The night was moonless, and the fire burned as high as a funeral pyre. It cast long shadows into the darkness of the water. Wait which... a second. Wait, 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 hold, hold on. Hold what? on. Let me stop you. Yeah. How, how is that supposed to help anyone? What do you mean? As high as high as a funeral pyre. How high is that? I don't know how high a you don't know how high a f- is. You, you've never watched TV and seen a funeral pyre. Well, I, but I don't know if is that ten feet? Is it twenty feet? It's about well, ten to fifteen feet. Oh, well, all right. But I, I, I love when people go, oh, it's about as high as a funeral pyre. Why do you say it was 15 feet? These guys. I'm trying to color it with rich <laughs> language. You're a writer for crying out loud, Rich. Come on. Look, I'm all for the poetic touch, but right now I need cold hard facts. <laughs> We're getting to the cold hard facts. Don't worry. <laughs> 
Let me just let me just set the stage, man. <laughs> All right, funeral pyre, funeral pyre. So our funeral pyre cast long shadows into the darkness of the water, which swallowed them whole. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. All right. All right, Shakespeare. <laughs> The men packed into a single canoe with Charlie Foltz in front, followed by the twins and Chuck Rack in the back. The men paddled approximately a mile from shore when they first started to sense something was off. Chuck Rack was the first to turn around and see the object. Quote, I turned toward the direction from where I felt this and saw a large bright sphere of colored light hovering motionless and soundless about 200 to 300 feet above the southeastern rim of the cove without taking my eyes off it i drew attention to the object by exclaiming that's a hell of a case of swamp gas (laughs) wow there's a pithy little remark to say when you're seeing the most terrifying thing in your life (laughs) yeah for sure One by one, they all stopped paddling and turned and looked. Charlie noted how he became transfixed on the object. Quote, I became completely absorbed in observing the object to the exclusion of everything else. I could see a fluid pulsating over the face of the object as it changed color from red to green to yellow-white. I detected a gyroscopic motion as if there were pathways of energy flowing equatorially and longitudinally from pole to pole. They divided the sphere into four oscillating quadrants. Wow, he's, you know, full of language here. Yeah. Jack described the object as big as a house in the shape of a pulsating sphere. The twins confirmed Chuck Rack's initial distance of the object. It made no noise and the men turned the canoe around to get a better view of the bright light. Jim recognized the light immediately as the same one he had seen two nights previously. As the men talked amongst themselves, deciding what they should do, it was Jim that came up with the idea to signal the light with a flashlight. And, folks, let's just stop here for a second. This is PSA (laughs) time. Okay, I don't want you to signal UFOs with flashlights. And the reason that I don't want you to do that is that it seems like in every single instance, somebody gets abducted. So you've got the Allagash guys. We're not, no, jumping the shark here, screwing the pooch. They're going to get abducted. Terry Lovelace, he signaled one with a flashlight. They got abducted. It just seems like a trend where people get abducted when you start messing with flashlights. So, folks, don't signal ufos with a flashlight so you know who else signaled ufos with a flashlight who john keel oh yes that's right he uh he what was it uh, he uh signaled it to make it go down if i remember yeah, correctly well, he, did, he did something this was in point pleasant this was during the the whole mothman experience and and he would do it and they would it, the whatever the craft or the light in the sky was it would respond. It would like he'd turn his flashlight on and off three times, and then the the craft or whatever it was, the light in the sky would blink uh, the exact same number of times. And then he'd do it twice, and it would go twice, and then and and he established very quickly some weird sort of communication. Mm. Um, as far as I know, he wasn't abducted, but uh, yeah, it uh, 
it, you, oddly enough, a little flashlight will get their attention. Seeing as how you met the man, here's a question for you. Was John Keel just too cool to abduct? Uh, <laughs> gee, I've never heard it described in those terms, that, that uh, the aliens would be like, no, he's too cool. <laughs> um but the answer, of course, is yes. Okay. I thought so. At least we can lay that out on the table. Maybe we should be a little more careful about what we signal to the UFO. Because in the case of the Terry Lovelace abduction, and in the case of the Allagash abduction, they signaled the same thing. So Charlie Foltz was the one that had the flashlight, and he made the fateful decision to signal the object. He sent out an SOS toward it, and the craft responded immediately. Do not send an SOS to a UFO, because it's going to abduct you. We, this is the way it is, folks. I'm laying it out here. Rich has laid out his theory. I'm laying out the facts here. Don't signal SOS to a UFO. You're going to get abducted. You know, that's really that, that is really weird. I never thought of it that way. That maybe maybe the aliens were like, oh, they need help. We they need to get out of the water. That's what you do if you were a lifeguard or whatever. Maybe that's you know what. I I, I think we see who the who the real cause of the trouble was now. Yeah, yeah, it was totally the guys in the canoe and aliens just trying to help. Yeah, aliens trying to help, and then you know what? They need payment in medical examinations, and you know what? They're not going to hit up your HMO. You're not going to get billed for it. So there you go. <laughs> the object changed course and headed for the men in the canoe. Charlie, Jim, and Jack decided to get the hell out of there. And headed for shore. But Chuck felt more curious than he did fear. And the canoe struggled along with only three of them paddling while Chuck just glared up at it. The object dropped a beam of light down toward the water and it pursued the canoe. The men raced hard. And in the next moment, they all found themselves looking up at the object from their campsite. Chuck Rack remembers sitting in the canoe on the shore looking up while the others remember Chuck standing. So that's kind of one discrepancy you have in this case, but I don't think it's a major one. The UFO imploded in the same way it had two days earlier at their previous campsite, but in the distance they could see a light moving away, reappearing quickly, before departing up and out of the way fast. All of the campers noticed how odd it was that the fire had died down. The funeral pyre had died down. It should have blazed for hours, and they could have sworn they were only out there for about 15 minutes. The men were too tired and went to bed without building up another fire. And the way it's presented in the book, they'd basically just pass out on whatever camp chairs that they have. They don't even go into their tent. The rest of the trip played out in kind of a fog. They don't remember much of it other than telling a park ranger about their UFO experience. And that was a fact that Ray Fowler was able to corroborate. Uh, It wasn't until the twins, and in particular Jack Wiener, were plagued by nightmares that they even brought the incident up again. The dreams would usually involve a growing sense of fear and an inability to move. Jack can see Jim, Chuck, and Charlie sitting on a bench, and he's trying to call out to them. He's frustrated that they're not trying to help him. 
It's then that movement catches his eye. Movement directly in front of him. Panic sets in as this thing, as he calls it, moves towards him, and he pleads with it in his mind not to harm him. Another being emerges, and their heads quiver, as if they are talking to one another. The two beings stare at him, and the one on the left raises his arm up. The one on the right has a metallic tool in his hand, and the moment the fear creeps in is when he wakes up. After hearing all of the men's stories, Ray Fowler urged all of them to undergo hypnosis, and Tony Constantino, a MUFON consultant, was brought in to perform the hypnosis. And David Webb, who uh, is Walter Webb's brother, who we mentioned in the Buff Ledge incident, the main investigator of that case, and he was consulted to help. In this case, even Jim's physician recommended that he undergo hypnosis, which is the first time I've ever heard that from really any physician, but weird. Yeah, so, okay, so so let's, let's track this. Mm-hmm. So Jim is the one who had the injury, right? Jim is the one that had the injury. Both of them were the ones that had the dreams, which is weird. So who, so it was, so Jim, did any, okay, (laughs) did anyone have a conscious recollection of the abduction prior to hypnosis? Nope, not one. So So the brain injury caused some weird uh, images in the mind of Jim that remind that for some reason he then connected back to the UFO experience, this weird light they saw in the sky. Mm-hmm. He made that connection, and then he said, I'm going to go get hypnotized. But do we know if he talked to the other guys and said, hey, I had this injury, it's, it's, I'm seeing weird things, and for some reason those weird things are reminding me or making me think about that light we saw in the sky, you know, 10 years ago. I don't believe he talked to Charlie and Chuck. He may have talked to his brother, but it doesn't seem that way. So it was only in the aftermath of him going to a guy who wrote a book about aliens and saying, Hey, I saw a UFO 10 years ago. Then I had, then I hit my head and now I've been getting weird visions. And that guy was Ray Fowler and Ray Fowler said, let me hypnotize you. He hypnotizes him, gets a story of abduction, and then the other three guys are brought in mm-hmm. with no previous conscious memory of abduction. But I'm guessing they did remember the UFO part. Yes, they did. And there's kind of an interesting thing here, and maybe this has to do with the fact that they're twins, but none of them, none of the other guys, Charlie or Chuck, recalled having strange dreams. It was only Jim and Jack. So maybe the fact that they're twins, maybe they have this connection that they're sharing yeah. the same dream. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And and, and and as children, they also had like a weird poltergeist ghost experience. Yes. They shared a bedroom as uh, as children, and they had some weird, very strange, ghostly-type experiences. Uh, right. That may have tied into abduction memories and such, or abduction events. And they weren't the only witnesses. Their parents also witnessed the same phenomenon that they witnessed yes. in that house, right? Yep. Okay. 
So it's not just totally some weird twin thing. It's like this may have had some kind of objective outward reality because other people saw it too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you're absolutely right. If we go back now that we're undergoing hypnosis and I've kind of condensed this down into one narrative, because if we go person to person, it's basically we're basically just going to be restating the same thing over and over again. But right. if we go back to that moment in the canoe as the men are being pursued by the strange light under hypnosis, a new narrative emerges. It starts with the light being shown on them. All the witnesses describe the light being like a tube with glass-like qualities to it, and they were sucked up into it. Chuck describes the voices of his friends fading, and in the next moment, they are transported somewhere else. They are all transported to a room. Charlie looks down from this room, once on board, and can see the canoe floating along on the lake, and they are not in it. They're led to another room where they are asked to remove their clothes. The first to be examined is Jack Weiner. He was placed on a table and examined by strange creatures that may or may not be greys. That is kind of the ambiguity of this case because all of these guys are artists and all of them have drawn these beings in different ways. But they kind of look like greys. At least the ones that Charlie yeah. Charlie draws, they look like greys. The one that the ones that Jack draws were the the ones that gave me nightmares because they're like a little too weird looking for me. But they all look essentially like big heads, big eyes, small chin. Yeah, I mean they they all have that look, right? Yeah, kind of weird. The weird hands. I mean, it's a very it's all the familiar. They're not that. They're not like wildly different. You know, Pascagoula looking creatures. No, we're not. We don't have carrot like appendages and elephant skin. No. no. <laughs> okay. Jack recalls a metallic instrument with a scoop on the end of it. Jim looked on as they examined every inch of his brother's body. They used a thin rod with a light on it to examine Jack's eyes, arms, genitals, feet, and legs. An object was inserted into his penis, and it was used to collect a specimen, most likely sperm, because that's the abduction narrative. That's what happens more often than not. Yeah. When they were done, they ushered him into another room where there was a number of different machines being used in there. Then it was Jim's turn, and he recalled that if he didn't remove his clothes, he felt like he was be in trouble, which is a very, it's an odd feeling that he has. He doesn't recall that the aliens told him to do that. He just feels that if he doesn't do this, he's going to be in trouble with them. Well, it, it, like a lot of these abduction scenarios, people, they don't speak to the aliens m- with their mouths. No. They, it is all telepathic, and they're just receiving feelings and, and suggestions where it's like, I knew they wanted me to go over here. I knew they wanted me, or I started getting scared, and then I heard a voice in my head coming from their head saying, don't be afraid. Stuff like that. Very, very common. Yeah. They poked and prodded Jim in the same way that they did Jack, and all of the men would describe being poked and prodded with this rod. And then they ushered them into the next room. They also collected a sperm sample from Jim. Those are the only two that I recall in the literature that 
testified to that. In the second room they are taken to, the main story in here mostly features Charlie, and uh, he goes through a more extensive procedure, which involves a machine that is placed over his chest. When Chuck is hypnotized, he remembers that there was a machine that was actually just embedded into his chest, which is terrifying. Yeah. When all the poking and prodding was over, the men were all led to a room with a tube just sticking out of the wall, conceivably the same room that they came into the ship through. And this tube swings around... The men are scared out of their minds because they don't know what's going to happen. And all of them disappear into the tube one at a time. So Jack describes the experience thusly. Quote, it's like, it's like, and he sighs, it's like running through something thick and it sticks and it makes you come apart and you can feel it. I see bright, bright, blinding light and images in my mind, little pieces of things. Little pieces of threads. Threads and little pieces of things coming towards me. I see myself coming towards myself like a mirror. I can see my face and I'm screaming. And my eyes are open real wide. And my mouth is open real wide. And my tongue is sticking out. And my ears are coming off. Hell of an experience. Hell of an experience. That is really, I mean, that is the scariest part because what they seem to be describing is this, tra- like they're like they're they're partially physical, then they're being almost like in a Star Trek way, being reduced down to their atoms and reassembled later as they travel through this membrane thing. Yeah, yeah. But what's really upsetting is that he says you can feel it. Yes, one hundred percent. You can feel the entire procedure just going down and I'm not down with that at all. Right. But the interesting thing to me that I'm going to draw your attention to is I saw myself going toward myself. Mm -hmm. So now I'm, now again, I'm just going to, you know, keep grasping at straws here, but, but does that mean that an aspect of his consciousness that again is not totally non-physical has left his body and that it's physical enough on some level that it can feel and experience and be seen by others and, and can experience trauma as it's on its way back to its most physical home. You know, the last two cases that I've covered, there is that element where that seems to ring a little more true in the buff ledge abductions One of the experiencers, Michael Lapp, at a certain point, he looks up at a bank of screens, this round bank of screens, and he sees an image of the dock that he was standing on, and he can see his body and the body of the woman that he was taken with laying on the dock. So, conceivably, yes, I I am 100% in agreement with you, and it's not often that we see these cases where people are describing seeing their body. Right. Cause that sounds like, like a near death experience. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. All right. The men are back in the canoe. Now Charlie and Chuck recall being repositioned in the canoe by the alien beings. And in the next moment they are on shore looking up at the strange craft as it departs. 
Through additional regression sessions with the four men, they come to discover that three out of four of them, Jim, Jack, and Chuck, have all had lifelong experiences with these kind of beings. Charlie is the odd man out here, though he does admit to having a UFO experience in the Navy. I'm not going to go into further detail on like their past life experiences. I'm going to explore that in a bonus episode. I mean, we're just focusing on the Allagash abduction because that's the main feature of of this story. But um, So we, we've got some discussion points that we're going to go into now. And the first involves Chuck Rack. So in 2016, Chuck Rack came forward saying that the abduction itself didn't happen. He claims they did see two UFOs, one on the night of the abduction and the other two nights previously, like we've stated. But the abduction itself just didn't happen. Charlie, Jim, and Jack have denied Chuck's claim, as well as Ray Fowler. Chuck has claimed he went along with it for the money supposedly. He claims that the Allagash abduction is not a hoax, but intricate storytelling. What do you make of this claim, Rich? Well, I mean, you know, you sent me the information. It was, it was not confusing, but it was an odd sort of, you know, because he didn't say we were out in the woods telling ghost stories and we decided, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we all go back into town and say we were abducted. Right, right. Um, the trip took place... See, here's the weird thing. The trip took place in 1976, right? Yep. But they didn't all rush home and go, oh my God, we were abducted. No. No, it was, it was, uh, it was over... It was a decade later. Yeah. And it only happened because people had been hypnotized and remembered being abducted. Mm-hmm. So... Raymond Fowler would have had to be involved. Like a lot of a lot of people would have had to be involved for money that never happened. I, I don't know. The money thing never makes a lot of sense. The, the other thing is, you know, an alien abduction is an experience. It happens to people. Okay, it's been reported by thousands and thousands of people around the world for, you know, you know, hundreds of years more if you you know if you sort of go back in time and sort through other personal narratives that maybe were understood in different ways through other cultural narrative traditions but but it, it it's very difficult to to go oh all of these people are telling the same lie and they all share extremely uh, uh unique things that are that are that are that are the same almost across the board it's funny it's like mainstream as it were mainstream science has stopped claiming that near-death experiences don't happen Mm -hmm. now even sort of the most materialist scientist will say well they happen but it's a hallucination right And, and we're kind of in the same place but maybe not quite as far along with uh, alien abductions, uh, many, many skeptics uh, or or debunkers will say, well, these things, these are all hoaxes and lies based on movies that people have seen or, or, or books or comic books, you know, and they, they read a story or they see a movie and they decide, oh, what if I start telling all my friends that this happened to me? 
And that's what all that is. Um, my feeling is that people are having experiences and they're all going to respond to those experiences differently. Some people are going to be very open to trying to figure out, to try to figure out what happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, And other people are going to be like, no, I don't want to talk about it. And as a matter of fact, I don't want to think about it. And you know, on second thought, it actually didn't even happen. Right. And I think, uh, what we need to point out here is that Chuck Rack himself is kind of an outlier during the investigation, during the hypnosis sessions, because Chuck Rack doesn't really offer up a lot. It's as if uh, he's not maybe prone to hypnosis, but uh, in some areas, what he offers up differs a little bit from what the guys reported. Like one of the things that he said was that the aliens were darker skinned when the other guys said that they were lighter skinned. So small details like that, which may be nothing, but ultimately Chuck rack really doesn't offer up much other than he attests to the fact that he is a a lifelong experiencer. And even then during that hypnosis session to uncover memories of his earlier experiences doesn't really offer up much. Right. Well, but you know, but Mary, Jim's wife, yeah. uh, when they, when they, uh, they start to hypnotize her because it looks like maybe she's had a shared experience at, you know, where, where she and Jim live. Um, she has trouble going under because she's sort of consciously resistant because she's afraid of what she might remember. Frankly, I don't blame her. Right. But, but when, when you think about it, Chuck may be a guy who, because of his psychological makeup, is not a very good subject for hypnosis. So the degree to which he was able to drop down into that state and and really vividly past event, it, it still it was still kind of hazy for him. So when he comes out of that, he's like, I was all kind of hazy. Even when I was under hypnosis, it, it didn't seem clear. I didn't feel like I was reliving it in the moment, which was an element that he experienced and that the hypnotists also acknowledged he did not seem to be sort of in a like present moment recreation of the events that happened. So maybe simply based on that, he's like, well, I was hypnotized, but I didn't remember what all these other guys remembered. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe, maybe either I feel weird because I wasn't able to really get at that thing that happened. So maybe it didn't happen. Therefore, maybe it didn't happen for me. Well, maybe it didn't happen for them either. Right. Uh, I mean, it's it's a little hard to tell because at the same time, he's claiming to be a lifelong experiencer. So he's not a guy coming out and saying, look, the UFO stuff is all bullshit. We all thought it was a funny story. We don't believe any of it, but we thought we'd make a couple of bucks. Clearly, that's not where he's coming from. Right. It's uh, So then let me throw this angle at you then so say that he is a lifelong experiencer of this do you think maybe he could have come forward saying this just because he doesn't want to talk about it anymore and he kind of wants to put it past him like he just wants to live his life and he doesn't want to be the guy that was abducted by aliens you think maybe that could be a case well you know i don't know because i don't know what his life is like or what the life of any um any person who sort of comes forward. I mean, the weird thing is, it's like, you know, unless these guys are showing up voluntarily at AlienCon, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if most people... Look, 
people know you, Rob. People know me, but they don't know what we're into. Right. If, if I say Allagash abduction to anyone else in my life, including my children and my wife, they're going to go, oh, that's one of dad's crazy UFO things. Pete, this is not general knowledge. I don't believe that unless Chuck Rack is telling people the story, my guess is people don't go, Chuck Rack, oh, we know all about you. He's not famous. So why it's not like, oh, my God, I've got to stop all these people questioning me and asking for my autograph. Why step forward and recant something that most people have never heard of? Mm, that's fair. That's, that's totally fair because in terms of the mainstream consciousness, UFO recognition culture of the cases that people know by heart, whether that's Kenneth Arnold whether that's Roswell, whether that's the Betty and Barney Hill abduction, whether that's Travis Walton or Whitley Strieber, the Allagash abduction received a little bit of mainstream push and ultimately has not come into the forefront of most... Uh, like, most people who talk about this, the, this subject, don't really talk about the Allagash abductions, which I find to be strange because... If you're talking about a mass abduction, this is kind of one of the more solidified cases. Even before Chuck Rack came out and and claimed that the abduction part was a you know was just straight up storytelling, I can agree with you that a lot of people probably aren't coming up to him and and saying you know tell me about your experience and stuff like that. It's just very well as far as far as alien abductions are concerned. I mean, I honestly, and maybe I haven't been looking for them, but I don't really know of any particularly famous case where years later a person or persons have come forward and said, "This was a total lie. We made it up. Here's the reason we made it up, and we have now just proven how gullible all you people are." Because anyone could make this shit up. Like I, I don't, I don't know of any that have gone that way. Do you? Um, I think there are people that have been caught in lies that they haven't recanted their stories, but they've just removed that piece of evidence or that story from their overall experience. And uh, I don't want to, I don't want to mention this guy, but um, Stan Romanek is kind of in that category because he oh. he was called out on the aliens in the in the window videos they were bs right I, well i was gonna say it it's like certainly contactees you know the the sort of the georgia damskys of the world and and the billy myers pe people who have you know hundreds of photographs of the ufo at their house and the alien beings and blurry pictures it's like yes that that is true I, I guess it's the people who have simply only had a story like these, these, these guys outside of maybe some markings on their bodies, they don't really have any physical proof of anything. There's no photographs. There's no, there, there's no other supplementary material. Right. right. So I guess the, uh, what I'm looking for is, has there ever been a story of people who just had a story, people like Betty and Barney Hill and stuff like that, who then came out and said, no, we just did it because we want a publicity. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's as common a thing as debunkers would 
like us to believe. And and I only say that because there have been a lot of people who have come forward and said, okay, here's a thing and here's how I hoaxed it. And and they and they they either demonstrate how some sort of physical evidence was hoaxed or they say, yeah, we all just made it up and and it backfired, so just leave us alone now. So kind of like um the Fox sisters famously came forward uh, years later and said that they hoaxed it and this is how we hoaxed it. So like, yeah, and, yeah, it's not well, that common a narrative. It's not a very common. I mean, the Fox sisters, it, 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 that doesn't stand up in my opinion at all. Their, ex- their explanation for how they hoaxed things is, is, is even more implausible than the phenomenon they claim to actually happen. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, frankly, they were paid to do. They, they were destitute at the time they made this confession. They were actually paid money to confess. That's where the money came in, not by telling the fake story, but by recanting the real story. And then, even after that, at least one of them said, explained that and said, "Look, I'll, I'll, I here's the reporter who paid us the money to get a story that they could, you know, run in the paper." Because we're broke and we needed some cash, and at this point, you know, our skills as mediums have faded, and so here we are. Right. It's very weird. The, 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 this entire field is very weird because even like like just to take mediums for a second, even people who have studied mediums will often say, "Well, you know, we this was a fake medium, and that was a fake medium, and we kept looking for a real one, and then we found a real one." That, that where, where a lot of what they did was not explainable, but then every once in a while they would we catch them doing some weird cheating thing. Mm-hmm. So then we redouble our efforts, but then other stuff happened that absolutely could not be fake. So then the question becomes: Well, why is the why is the legit person faking? And then and there have been discussions about this, by the way. Um, uh, Jeffrey Kripal on uh, talking to Greg Bishop. Uh, th- they were having this conversation about how s- it's almost the fake it till you make it. It's like seance groups getting together and just like, okay, let's just get together and believe that we are going to get some sort of phenomenon. And then after a while they do. Well, well, that reminds me of what I do for a living. I sit in a room with some other people going, we need to tell 13 episodes of Titans and we need to do it in the next nine months. <laughs> Or, or we are in big trouble. And then we all just start making stuff up and throwing ideas out. And before you know it, episodes start to appear. Yeah. Now, that's a creative process. But who is to say that there is not an element of, of that part of a human's brain that must be engaged to perceive this phenomenon? Mm-hmm. Yeah, to- totally. The real question is, why isn't that part of your brain on yet rich why i know right i don't know i don't know i mean i've told you that i used to really hope something would happen and now now i really hope something doesn't happen but frankly how stupid would it be if something did happen who would believe if suddenly a month from now i went on your show and went rob it happened (laughs) i i would be here i would be asking for the exclusive rich i would be bugging you for it (laughs) 
<laughs> well, uh, well, I'm only going to do it if you pay me a lot of money. I'm only going to do it for the money. Okay. Um, the- ooh, how much can I offer you? A lot of money. Uh, well, well, how much? L- l- how much did these Allagash guys make? That—that's all I want. I uh, to be f- uh, aren't they all, aren't they all living in palatial homes and flying around in private jets based on all the money they made? Uh, probably not. The only one that I really know of their home situation was Jack Weiner, who built a house in the remote parts of Vermont. Wow. Clearly, he doesn't want to be found or talked to unless he's at a convention, which some of these guys still do. I was talking to Greg Newkirk on Twitter one day, and I mentioned the Allagash abductions, and he threw up a quick picture that he had taken, I think, with Charlie Foltz and maybe Jim or Jack Wiener. Oh, really? Yeah, they just nabbed him real quick for a photo. <laughs> that is so funny. Well, you know, I, this... This notion that you're going to make a lot of money, like I, I, I would venture to say, and I don't know this for a fact, but I, I would venture to say that Whitley Strieber made money on Communion and, and maybe even made money on some of the sequels, but that was 30 years ago. Yeah, and he declared bankruptcy. Is, <laughs> he, more than once. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is not, this did not lead to long-term fame and book sales. In fact, it did quite the opposite because people were extremely resistant, sometimes, you know, violently so, to his claims. And they were just like, you know, not only do we not believe you, but we do believe that you are a, a an evel liar right and right. uh and, and 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 you have now we're, we're not gonna publish your books you are now persona non grata it didn't turn him into Stephen King it turned him into a guy who can't sell a book anymore right 100 percent and the the most anything I've seen Whitley Strieber do he had his alien hunter series for tour books and then it was briefly a tv show for uh the sci-fi channel but it i think it was canceled like a few episodes in because like that's kind of sci-fi's thing i don't think it's been a while since sci-fi had a really good show that actually lasted more than a couple seasons but yeah yeah but uh yeah that's Um, that's kind of uh he he hasn't done much that's for sure yeah no i'm trying to I'm trying to think of people who have made a ton of money in these sort of not true crime, but true paranormal. Like even Dan Aykroyd, you know, has talked very openly about his interest in these subjects. And he's already famous. He's already a guy who's made, you know, 10 fortunes. And and yet when he delves into these areas, those aren't big money makers for him. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, but the big money maker was Ghostbusters. I mean, the way to make money off the paranormal is to tell a fictional story, as Stephen King has been doing for 45 years. Right. But the nice thing about Stephen King is more often than not, he'll tell you where he gets his influence from or where his inspiration comes from. So Right. And it's never real life. It's well, that's, Robert Bloch. That's, you know? that's not true. There are a couple that come from real life. The Shining is very much based on, a, a, I think, a dream that he had at the Stanley Hotel. But if I remember correctly, Firestarter is based on some of the stuff that came out in the 70s when 
Frank Olson, the Frank Olson murder suicide investigation was reopened and a lot of the uh, Project MK Ultra stuff came out. I believe part of uh, a good portion of Firestarter was inspired by some of MK Ultra. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's that. It, but it wasn't. Yeah, it, it's based on 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 stuff that that exists in public knowledge, but not based on a personal experience of his own. Right. He he. Does, Stephen King does not claim I I have seen and interacted with vampires. Therefore, I wrote Salem's Lot, which is which is a romantic clef. It's just it's just barely disguised autobiography. Mm-hmm. That that's not his gig. That isn't what he does. He's like, no, I am telling stories. I am a, as was Whitley Strieber before he became consciously aware of what was going on in his apparently lifelong interactions with aliens. So do you think then that Whitley Strieber violated some like writer's law that you don't tell true stories, that your stories are inspired, but they're not real? Well, it's an interesting thing. I, I, I think because people always ask that stuff. And they ask Stephen King all the time. And they kind of, like, you you, you kind of want Stephen King to go, well, I did see a ghost this one time, you know. But, but, you know, and, and, and a lot of times we want to believe that writers and novelists that we like are somehow writing veiled autobiography. But I, I almost feel like the minute they admit that, somehow you wake up from the dream and they become less interesting. Mm-hmm. And I, I think in a weird way, that's what happened with Whitley Strieber. Like, like in terms of long-term money-making, if that was ever his goal, Strieber might have been better off going, look, I wrote this book. I got some, you know, I, I got some shit for it. Uh, it all happened, but I've told my story. You want to know my story? Go read the book. I've told it. Uh, and uh, and now I'm just going to go ahead and write my other novels. Mm-hmm. And and in the aftermath of Communion, he did continue. He published I don't know a small handful of novels after that that I, I don't think any of them did particularly well. And then he wrote three sequels, maybe four sequels, follow ups, ancillary material to Communion, some of which did well, others didn't. But it, it it's not. I mean, again. The idea that standing up and going, I am experiencing weird shit, and that that is going to make you money for decades to come, I, I don't I don't really see a lot of real life examples of that. No, no, and, and I completely agree with you. Moving into another area of this phenomenon, hypnosis is a tool that a lot of researchers use uh, in these cases. Do you think that hypnosis is a useful tool in, unco- in uncovering abduction memories? And do you think there is a threshold at which, it, you know, if it goes beyond this, it could be damaging? You know, I, I really don't know. For a while, it seemed like that was kind of the, uh, like, like this sort of a magic wand where you could, you know that story that we we always hear, people always talk about, about that guy who was having brain surgery that one time, and 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 the surgeon sort of like like one of one of the the tools they were using on the on the physical brain sort of grazed uh, a a different part of the brain, and the guy started talking. Yeah, 
uh, and, and he started talking uh, like he was talking to someone he knew or or suddenly like reliving a moment from earlier in his life. And suddenly they were like, oh, my God, we 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 sort of touched the physical part of the brain that contains a almost like a tape recording of this guy's memory. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and 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 then we began to believe, oh, my God, hu- the human brain is like a tape recorder. And and somewhere in there is a very literal recording of exactly what happened. So if we could do brain surgery and find where to touch you in the in the brain, you could tell us what happened on a particular day and help us solve a crime. Mm-hmm. Something like that, right? Right. I think that's what hypnosis used to feel like. Like if we put you under hypnosis, we can sort of pry consciousness away and get to this other sort of like unconsciousness altered literal truth. And I don't know if people feel that way about hypnosis anymore. I almost feel like hypnosis is used nowadays for the opposite reason, which is we're, we're going to use hypnosis for its ability to give you false information. Mm -hmm. Like in other words, you want to stop smoking. Okay. I'm going to hypnotize you to believe that uh, cigarettes taste like dog shit. Right. And every time you pick up a cigarette, you're going to go, oh, God, it smells like dog shit. So so it, it's literally the opposite, and it's now literally the thing that would make you not believe a story. Because it's almost like I'm going to hypnotize you to believe that you were abducted. Now, I don't think that's what Ray Fowler was attempting to do. But I also don't know if if this stuff is understood well enough, I mean, maybe it's enough to go, Hey, we're going to sit you down and we're going to hypnotize you because we think maybe you had an alien abduction experience. And maybe that's all the information the conscious mind needs to then begin creating a narrative. I honestly don't know. I'm not an expert in hypnosis. I have you ever been hypnotized? No, I haven't. I went to hypnosis, uh, uh, excuse me, a, a hypnotist, about 15 years ago because I had recently developed a, uh, um, a really bad fear of flying mm-hmm. and, and nothing seemed to help. And it was sort of getting worse. I had one really bad flight. I, I'd, I'd always been a great air traveler, really loved it. And then there was this one really bad flight that really scared me and, and kind of after that, every time I got on an airplane, my fear got worse and worse and worse. So I thought, I'll go to hypnotist. I do not feel I was ever hypnotized. This person worked with me um, a lot. I, but something about the idea of being hypnotized really scared me. And I trusted the person. This was a private sessions, like a therapy session. I, it, it never worked on me. And because and I, I actively resisted it. I think mm. so. So I don't even have like like personal first hand information of what it even what it feels like, or you know, was it effective? Is a post hypnotic suggestion really effective? So I don't know. Is hypnosis used nowadays for for anything other than you know weight loss and giving up smoking? <laughs> um, one of the. Uh, stories that I covered 
last year was the story of David Stevens, who was uh, an experiencer like the Allagash guys. His uh, abduction occurred a year before the Allagash in the uh, abductions. And one of the, the hypnotists that he saw specialized in hypnosis for helping to treat addiction and helping pregnant women deal with pain during childbirth. That's that's it. Okay. But um I mean uh, it, it you know you were saying in an earlier phone call that you and I had offline that that you know there's how much conscious recall are you having, you know, outside of the hypnotist's office? Mm-hmm. And and then is that and then and then when a person then goes in with conscious recall with I have I am walking around now with clear memories of this thing having happened. And then a hypnotist says, okay, well, let me put you under hypnosis and see if you can remember more. Right. You know, then that's something to factor in. But I just know that a few years ago, suddenly it was like, okay, hypnosis is all bullshit. Any kind of hypnotic regression of any sort, all of that, all of that evidence has to be thrown out the window. And I don't know if that was something that was being pushed by mostly debunkers or if it was people within kind of the legit paranormal community who, in, in an ongoing effort to find good ways to investigate, finally decided, no, we've come to the understanding that this is not reliable, so let's just let's kind of table all that and not rely on it more than we should. I think a lot of the blowback that hypnosis has gotten is that in a hypnotic state, people are very suggestive. And I think that's what most of the criticisms of hypnosis have come down to. So I got to be honest, reading this book, which is almost, I mean, it's like 90% transcript of hypnotic sessions. I really did not feel that they were leading right these people at all it was a lot of okay so you're 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 at the campsite uh and 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 the the sun has gone down and it's nighttime uh what happens next Mm -hmm. it's a lot of well what happens next right well what you know it's like well it's like oh my gosh now oh it's coming right up on me it's right next to me okay let's slow down look over to your right describe what you see and that's all it is. It's stuff like that, right? Yeah. So I, in no level, I, I did not come away from anything in this book going, he's not asking questions like, okay, now tell me about when the aliens first abducted you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's just not that. So uh, I don't think it's Ray Fowler directing people. I will say that. Do you think at times that he got a little aggressive during the, the sessions? Yeah. How so? Uh, just like really pushing a point uh, at at some point, like trying at, at certain points when he would uh, try to discern a piece of information, he would just kind of get a little pushy. Well, I, he, he, I think he would, he would kind of slow down mm-hmm. and go, okay, like like he'll step out of the he'll step out of the transcript and go, oh, this was a great opportunity. Um, you know, it, it occurred to me in the moment uh, as this person was under hypnosis that this would be a, gr- you know, let's really get a description of what these beings looked like. Mm-hmm. 
So, so I said, okay, now slow down. Okay. So now look, start from top to bottom and describe what you see. And then they'd start describing the, the head and then he'd go, okay, continue down, continue down, continue down. What's below the chin? What's, what, what are the, you know, are there hands? What are the hands like? And by the way, do you remember when they described the feet? I don't know. I did not. Oh my God, Ron! I know I'm slipping. That's my thing. thing. I know I'm slipping. They said in in the one. I think they were talking to Charlie, but they go all the way down the alien's body, all the way down to the feet, and they the uh, I think it was Charlie said they're wearing a kind of foot covering or shoe, and it's split. And they're like, "What do you mean?" And he's like, "It's like split into two sections at the toe." And it, oh. I'm like, Shh. "I'm like, whoa! That almost sounds like the cloven hoof." Damn picture of the David Stevens abductor. That's what their feet look like. God damn it! <laughs> well, there you go, man. Sorry, sorry, Shaggy. Oh. I mean, Scoob. Oh. <laughs> hey, like. Like, let's get out of here, Scoob! <laughs> oh, man. So, one aspect that we have to bring up, and, and I know when we discuss this on the phone, it's it comes down to a matter of interpretation, but all four of these guys are artists, and all four of them draw these beings differently. Do you think that affects this case in any way, or do you think that's just artistic interpretation? Yeah, no, I don't think it affects the case at all because they're all essentially like if you just grabbed four random people and said, you know, well, you've all seen Close Encounters, draw the aliens. People's ability is is going to express itself differently. They're, they're all drawing the same kind of alien. They all got the big heads, they all got the big eyes, the small mouth, and no ears. Again, no one's drawing a robot. No one's drawing a tall, blonde, angelic being. I mean, even within the world of alien iconography, uh, they're, they're not that different. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not concerned with that at all. I think, I think you know, people, you're, you're asking someone to interpret something. That's all. I think after examining every single one of their drawings of what they had seen i think the tamest of them all is uh charlie foltz's because it the gray that he draws and now these grays are about the height of these guys so they're over five feet tall but but this one just kind of has a surprised look on his face like oh my god i can't believe you're drawing me <laughs> <laughs> wait a second is that which uh let me i'm gonna see that because i've got the book right um, here. What's... uh my on my edition page 113 here we go. One. Oh wait. One. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He's just sort of like looking off to the side a little bit. Yeah, just and the way that there's, is. There's the head and then the body. Yeah, yeah. and then and the way his mouth looks in that larger head picture, it's like, oh my god, I can't believe you're drawing me. <laughs> I know because the mouth is sort of turned down. It does sort of look like a cartoon. I'd like to see a, a like a daily newspaper cartoon involving this character. I, I would too. So page 78 and 79 is uh, what I call the nightmare fuel. Um, not down with Oh yeah. Not down with Jack's pictures. Um, Chuck's picture is equally disturbing on page 134. 
Um, and Jim, Jim's is actually yeah, but... pretty pretty tame. Uh, I'll be honest. Uh, uh, the guy on one thirty four seems to be smiling. Yes, he does. I I don't like that at all. <laughs> I don't like that. I don't, I don't like him looking surprised. I don't like him smiling. Um, so, um, flip to page 52. This is probably, aside from Charlie, this is pretty tame here. Um, 52. Yeah, you know what's interesting about these is that from the side, they've got almost like a beak, it looks like. Like, the other guy drew that, too. It, it Like, the heads don't just... They're not teardrop shaped. They they've got like a little bump around their mouth. Yeah, they jut out a little bit uh, around there. Yeah, the fifty two and seventy eight or seventy nine. If you look at the drawing on seventy nine, the profile it, below the eye, it, it looks like it it goes out a little bit, almost into like a muzzle kind of thing. That's not as apparent from the front. Right. Yeah. You're you're absolutely right. Um. I think my favorite drawing in this is on page 247. This is absolute nightmare fuel. This is one of Jack Wiener's illustrations. And this is going to a time when the alien beings were coming into his Vermont helm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, these look, they don't have necks. They, around the mouth, they do look like it sort of protrudes. They, they Yeah, the, those are... Those look predatory. Don't don't they almost look like suits? Yeah. 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 Oh, what about the one the one on one sixty five bugs me? Uh, okay. Uh, yes. Yeah, I don't like that. That's another Jack Wiener drawing. That yeah, that one looks malicious. He looks malicious, and I'm uncomfortable that you can. I don't know how to put this. You can kind of see Jack's wiener. Let's put it. That yeah, way. his uh, his wang is out. His Jack Wiener is out. Yeah, yeah, that's uncomfortable. Yeah, uh, I know they 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 made it clear they were naked when it was happening, but boy, that's a little. I don't want to be naked around those things. Uh, no, not not an experience that uh, I would want. Um, also, the illustration on page ninety one. Also, looking at it right it's now, not, looking right at it's it. It's not comforting. It like. But, I think. But what the fuck is that? That looks like some weird computer generated like. Th- that, th- those look like photographs that have been somehow superimposed on a drawing. Well, Jack, Jack Wiener is the guy that made computer art in his home. Yeah, that's what this looks like. And I don't... It, it's hard to tell... Because look at look at their legs. Yeah. Is, is the alien, like, sitting on a bench, but his torso is turned yes. toward those two guys? Yes. Is that it? Yeah, that's, that's what's happening. And... Uh, and it looks like his hands are in their lap and they're naked. I don't know. Again, it's getting a little it's getting creepy. Know, uncomfortable. It, it's yeah. it's getting very, very creepy. Folks, I'll, I'll throw these images up on the social media profiles on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, uh, just so you can get in on this action here. But I think 91, the image on 91, upsets me the most because it's like, there's a realist element to it, and it's these guys sitting on the bench, and then there's something that isn't real or shouldn't be real, and it's sitting next to them, and it's touching his arm. Yeah, yeah. I, th- yeah, just the whole approach to this representation is weird to me. And then the uh, the final one uh, I want to talk about, oh, the one yep. on page 82. 
I knew it. I'm looking at it right now. How dare you? It's ridiculous. Come on. It, That's and no this good. one, again, just in the way that it's drawn, it looks like a suit. Yeah, well, I mean, but they, again, that's super common is this description of the alien looked like it was wearing a tight-fitting metallic suit, like a ski suit or something. Right, right. I mean, th- th- that gets said a lot. Right. Or, like, sometimes when the uh, aliens, like, put their eyes close to the face, they can see eyes underneath them or the honeycomb shape. Yeah. Yep. So... The the final question I have for you, in the pantheon of abduction cases, the ones that we have come to bolster up there as great examples of the phenomenon, like Betty and Barney Hill, Pascagoula, Travis Walton, even Whitley Strieber, where would you rank this case among those? Um uh, in in terms of in terms of what qualities, in terms of just, you know, sheer interestingness or reliability reliability or, mostly I, I i'd rank this one pretty high okay yeah uh, i i don't i chuck rack notwithstanding um th- this to me i mean look it, it even if i mean you know there's a lot we don't know and you would have to assume people are lying yeah for anything else I'm about to say to make sense, that they just people are just out and out, I am knowingly going to lie in the way I'm presenting this story, either by the the hypnotic subject or the hypnotist themselves. And yeah, you could do that, but I don't know. I mean, I gotta tell you, we're living in an era where where it it, it it's it's like well um, Unless you've got a videotape of something happening, I'm not going to – it, it never happened. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is even if you do have a videotape, you know, we can all just stand around and go, I don't believe what you just said. And it's like, well, okay, you know, uh, I, I guess we can all just choose to live in our own realities. But if you step back from that and go, you know what, I'm going to have to take in all the experiences I've ever had – and all the people I've ever known, and and put a bunch of reference points on a huge reality map in front of me, and try to begin to get a sense of what our human experience might be, I am unable at this point to say, people who claim to have paranormal experiences, including alien abduction, are lying or crazy. I... I, I I can't say I believe it because it's never happened to me and I, nothing has ever happened. And and even people who have had it happen to them often don't say, I believe it because it's like, I don't understand it. It happened, but I don't understand it. It, it, So it hasn't caused me to view the entire world differently. Maybe I just had this weird experience. I am willing to believe that people who are not me, a white man, living in America have had different experiences that I might not immediately understand based on the experiences I have had in my life. And that doesn't mean, well, your experience of the world means nothing to me because I don't happen to be you. I think maybe we're living in an era where it's like, no, but maybe you could sort of go, well, what is it like to be you? 
and 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 maybe that's valid also and 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 maybe i need to incorporate some of your experiences into my view of reality on earth even though i haven't had those exact same experiences you know what i mean yeah it's kind of like just just because you don't speak a language doesn't mean that others don't and that when they do you know that language exists beyond you just because it's not within your experience to speak it does not mean that it cannot be possible or that somebody did not experience it right and i don't have to do anything about it by the way Mm-hmm. Because people are people ask guys like you and guys like me and guys like John Tenney and Scott and Forrest, they're always saying, well, what do you believe? So you believe in all that stuff, right? Mm. And it's not a matter of belief. It's a matter of listening to what someone says and not feeling that it's incumbent upon you to make a determination about the reality of a, their experience. Just hear it mm-hmm. and go, okay. That's your experience. And, you know, if you're talking to someone and you really feel like they're lying, that's fine. Then they're lying. But if you're listening to someone tell something incredible and upsetting and you don't think they're lying, then don't go to the easy place mm-hmm. and go, well, uh, that makes me uncomfortable. So uh, I choose not to believe. That's solid. Rich had advice there, folks. And that's where we're going to bring it to a close. Rich, I can't thank you enough for coming on the pod, man. And uh, going through this story that has terrified me for 20-plus years and and to experience it with me all over again. Well, Rob, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed my, my visit to UFO High School, <laughs> which is what you people don't know what happens. Basically, Rob sends you a text one day and says, uh, read this book and be prepared to discuss on this date. Uh, 90% of your grade depends on it. <laughs> Again, man, I'm a pass-fail kind of guy. I'm I'm not going to make it too rigorous. <laughs> well, okay, so did I pass or fail this time around? Uh, you, you pass with flying colors, man. Pass with flying colors. Yes! Oh, my God. I, you know, I might graduate. You might just graduate. So congratulations, uh, class. Of 2019, Rich Adam is going down the aisle. He's getting his diploma right now. <laughs> Thank you, Professor. <laughs> so, uh, Rich, uh, feel free to plug anything you want. What do you got going on? Uh, well, just feel free to plug anything, man. Well, I know it will take uh, effort on the part of the listener, but if you if you love DC Comics, if you're interested in those characters, uh especially the Titans, the Teen Titans, and would like to see them in their live-action show that is definitely for grown-ups. It's not for kids. There's a lot of, you know, there's, there's action and violence and, and some, some, some sex. Uh, there's a show called Titans on DC Universe. You've got to go find it on your computer and subscribe. But you will be watching, um, you know, a really great show. I mean, you know, if, if you like, uh, you know, the Marvel shows, uh, like, you know, Jennifer Jones and Daredevil and stuff like that. That's what this is like. Or you know, even Supergirl and The Flash. This is produced at a very high level. These are really entertaining. It's an hour-long series called Titans. And uh, you go to DC Universe and subscribe, and you can watch. We're in our second season. We just debuted. The, the fans are enjoying it. They loved season one, and they appear to be loving season two even more. So uh, we're... We're up to, let's see, we've aired four out of 13 
and they drop on Fridays. So uh, you and I are talking on a Thursday, so tomorrow episode five will drop, and it goes week to week, so this will go on through December, and you'll get 13 episodes of, uh, of The Titans season two, and it's a wonderful season. I wrote a lot of it, and, uh, and, if, and if, you, if anyone out there does watch it, uh, reach out and let me know what you think. I'm on Twitter, at Richard Haddam, and uh, I'd love to hear what you think. And folks, just get out there, watch it. It's pretty damn great. I've I've not watched the whole thing. I've seen a few episodes, and it's pretty damn good. So go out, watch Titans. You'll love it. With that, folks, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. Or over the Allagash Waterway. In gray, we trust.